Good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. I'm thankful to, to personally thankful to be back with you this week. Last week, as uh, most of you, many of you may know, I traveled to Arkansas. Uh, that's Arkansas with an S, not a W. Um, that's a joke. I traveled to Arkansas, southwest Arkansas to be exact, to attend my aunt's memorial service. I also had the privilege to preach at my sister Jennifer's church, Maranatha Baptist Church, for those who would want to pray for them, uh, for, a, for Pastor Bruce Short. I'm thankful that he is a like-minded pastor who is faithfully shepherding and teaching his people, has been doing so for many years. Amazingly, he planted uh, the church, I think, uh, maybe 30 years ago, uh, and, and taught against the doctrines of grace for 15 years. Then, as he studied Scripture, he began to realize the sovereignty of God in salvation, and he completely changed his doctrinal direction, which is very, very difficult to do even personally, but then to do that and to lead a church is even more incredible. He completely changed his doctrinal direction and began to slowly move his people toward the doctrines of grace, and he also began to preach systematically through the Bible. And right now, Pastor Bruce, funny enough, is preaching in Matthew, and which is where we're at in our normal study, and he's in Matthew chapter 26. He was telling me that it was a very difficult transition, but he has been able to lead the church through it over the last 15 years. He, he actually told me there's one holdout still in the church. As a matter of fact, as I was preaching last week, he was sitting on the front row to my left as I preached God's sovereignty and salvation in the salvation of a little guy named Zacchaeus. And I pray that God used that sermon to further persuade uh, that brother's heart of the truth of salvation. But I'm also thankful, uh, you, don't, you guys are probably not aware of this area, but you're aware, of the, the guys were talking about earlier, how difficult it is to find faithful churches. Uh, this area is devoid of faithful churches, and I'm thankful that, that Maranatha Baptist and Pastor Bruce are faithful in that area. And I'm thankful for the change that has occurred <clears throat> through Pastor Bruce's faithful preaching. More than that, I'm thankful for the people of Maranatha Baptist Church. During my in, in visit, I was thoroughly impressed with them. Before the service, they had a wonderful breakfast together. This happens every Sunday. So they gather at 9 a.m. every Sunday. They gather at 9 a.m. for breakfast together. And then they follow that by about a 30-minute prayer time. Uh, I was absolutely blown away by the participation of, in the breakfast as well as the, uh, the prayer time. They participated. They all participated in the prayer. And I was amazed to hear what they were praying and how they were praying. I was also amazed to hear that they've been praying for our church, Grace Bible Church, on a regular basis. Ever since I've gotten to know Pastor Bruce, uh, we've been a, a subject of prayer for them. Uh, I ask you then to pray for them for their continued protection they are a rare jewel, especially in that area in Arkansas. Um, they, they, they pray that they would continually to continue to faithfully proclaim the truth of God's Word and also pray that there would be more churches that would not back down from the truth in that area. We need more faithful men like Pastor Bruce who will preach and teach uh, God's Word and will help others to do the same. I am thankful then for men like Pastor Bruce, but I'm also thankful to be back here this Sunday 
with you because I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for Grace Bible Church, and I'm thankful for the past seven years you've allowed me to lead and partner with you in ministry. And so when you go out of town and you see those things and then you come back, it gives you an even further, uh, uh, further appreciation for what we have here. You have faithfully supported our ministry, this church, through the ups and downs of the past seven years, and I pray, praise God for His protection of this, this church. You have trusted, this is you, I'm speaking to you specifically, you have trusted our Lord's promise to build His church, and you have trusted that the gates of Hades would not overpower it. And I have, I have seen that promise fulfilled many times and in a variety of ways, and I trust that we will continue to see that promise fulfilled in the years to come. Now, as you know, we are taking a break from our study through the Gospel of Matthew to consider the church, to consider this subject of the church. Specifically, our theme has been to learn to walk in faith through the full knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Ultimately, ultimately our growth and knowledge of Him and knowledge of His church will result in a greater faith and Jesus our Lord, which will result in a, an increased love for God and for His saints. You see, nothing can destroy any church that God builds, that Jesus builds, that is, ultimately, and nothing can hold any church back that is growing in love for our Lord. Those are two promises that we can count on. Now, two weeks ago, we began to work through Matthew chapter 16, 13 through 20. I preached the first of what will be three sermons which answer the question, what is the church? What is it? What is it? We, go, we come to church, but what is the church? Today, we're going to continue, continue with the second of that, uh, that series, uh, answering this critical question. In, in three weeks, three weeks from now, we will have our retreat weekend, and during that time, we're going to consider Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, recognizing our spiritual armor. And, and here's the reason, here's the whole point of all of this. As we reflect on the past few years uh, of this church, we can't help but notice, well, really the past few years, uh, just in general, we can't help but notice the confusion and chaos created by various historical events. Uh, unfortunately, we have witnessed much division, not only in our nation, in our, in our culture, but also in the church. We need to prepare ourselves for what actually lies ahead because I, I believe that this world, that our world, is becoming increasingly dangerous for those who proclaim Christ as their Lord and as their King. As Christians, we don't put our trust in what we can see. Instead, we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, on, on Christ Jesus, enduring uh, as we endure whatever, whatever comes our way. Our retreat, as we, as we consider our retreat, it's going to help us recognize that our Lord has given us the protection we need to stand firm against the fiery arrows of the evil one. And so, in, in, in 1 Timothy 2.15, the Apostle Paul told Timothy that he wrote, he wrote so that one will know how to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the, the, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, you may not realize it. You know, you look around this church, and, and we're small. We're, we're seemingly insignificant. But you are, as the church, you are the pillar and support of the truth. You see, if we fail in carrying out that mandate, so 
as we look at the culture, as we look at what's going on in the culture, as we look at what's going on even in the church, if we fail to carry out the mandate to be the pillar and support of the truth, then we're no longer the church. That's, I mean, that's the truth. But to the extent that we fulfill that purpose of being the pillar and support of the truth, we will endure Satan's fiery arrows. Do y'all see that? So if we stand for the truth in this culture, even in the wider church, then we're going to endure the flaming arrows of the evil one. Put simply, put simply, I wanted, I've wanted us to spend time considering how we can thrive under attack. Too many in the church are, are too willing to give up on the church when the going gets tough. Have you noticed that? So when the going gets difficult, they give up on the church. Now, they do that in more than one way. They give up on the church either by, either by leaving the church, by getting out of the church. Maybe it's called deconstructing your faith. Or they stay in the church, but they fight to uh, stay away from the truth. They don't want to fight for the truth, so the church becomes nothing more than a, than a club. In the, the words of John Chrysostom, he says this, Do not hold aloof from the church, for nothing is stronger than the church. The church is your hope, your salvation, your refuge. It is higher than the heavens, it is wider than the earth, it never waxes old, but is always in full vigor. End quote. I believe his words, I believe John Chrysostom's words, ring more true today than when he spoke them. Uh, R.C. Sproul has rightly warned, to stay away from the church is to spit in God's face and despise his gift of the kingdom. That's R.C. Sproul. For now, let us dive back into answering the question, what is the church? So exactly what is this that we do every Sunday? This is truly a foundational concept that Satan has increasingly attacked in our culture. Therefore, it is critical for us to take a, a more in-depth look at this foundational text in Matthew chapter 16. I want us to better understand, now get this, I want us to better understand the transcendent nature and function of the church, particularly the local church. With that, let me pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, you know my heart, and you know my heart for the church. Lord, I want to be clear. I want there to be clarity as to what the church is. Oh, we know the, the dictionary definitions, and we understand that. But I want to, to go back, Lord, to the foundation so that the people here, your church, would understand the transcendent nature of what we do every Sunday. Uh, the transcendent nature of the fellowship when we come together on, at other times, the transcendent nature of all these things so that we would understand your purpose for the church in this world. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's pick up in Matthew 16, 13. Matthew 16, 13 in your scripture. So if you're not there, if you could turn there. Let me read God's word, Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say, who do you say that I am? 
And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, here in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, what we're going to see is three vital insights that Jesus gives into the nature and function of the church. And Jesus has called his, his people based on, first, and we saw this last time, the realization of his identity. Second, the reality of his work. And third, the recognition of his power. Now, let's briefly review that first insight. As, as we're reviewing this text, you may be asking, and I hope you're asking, why are we studying this text and why are we considering the question, what is the church? Clearly, as I alluded to earlier, the church today is, under, is in turmoil and under attack. We are struggling with our direction and we're contemplating our existence. This has been really true of the church since the beginning. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He says, indeed, I want to show you that the history of the church has been a great fight between two ideas, the false human idea as to what the church is and the true one, which is God acting in the church, end quote. Now, I want you to grasp that, that there is a, a false human idea of the church, and we see that in a variety and various ways, and there's a true one. Which, God is, which, which is God acting in the church. Truly, then we need to recognize, and we should recognize, and I'm sure you do recognize, that the church is under increasing attack. Even this church is under increasing attack, but the church is God's idea, not man's idea. So I want you to get that, that the church is God's idea, not man's. Now, as you know, or as you may know, Tucker Carlson, the, uh, the news guy, interviewed Vladimir Putin this past week. And in that interview, Putin said that the world, this was pretty profound actually, he said the world has objectively and fundamentally changed in the past couple of decades. Now, he said that because of all that's going on uh, geopolitically, but I believe he's correct. And we need to recognize that, that change, whether, whether it's what he was talking about or the change that we see, and we need to re ready ourselves for the fight. Now, when a nation struggles with their direction or existence, uh, the, the right thing to do is to return to the founding documents, right? Well, in the U.S., we have the Declaration of Independence, and we have the Constitution with its Bill of Rights. Those founding documents have held us together as a nation for over 200 years through many difficulties. Well, for the New Testament church, Scripture contains our founding documents. And in particular, Matthew 16, 13 through 20 is, I would call, the most important foundational document for the New Testament church. For this reason, we're going to revisit this text again. Now, I need to remind you that this account is foundational to understanding, first, the trans transcendent nature of the church. I, I can't say that enough, that it is God's idea. The, I want to remind you it's foundation to understanding the function of the church in worship of the king, 
And third, I want you to understand Jesus' purpose for his church in edifying the saints and evangelizing the lost. That is the point that we want to see here in Matthew chapter 16. And your interpretation of the exchange between Jesus and the disciples in Matthew 16 will drive your understanding of the church's foundation and of the church's authority. Ultimately, it will help your understanding of even why we do this thing called church. Now, as we dive into our outline, let's quickly review the importance of the historical context of this account. So what is the historical context? Well, look at your text in Matthew 16, 13. It says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, now, as Jerusalem and the cross came ever more into focus, our Lord began to withdraw from the crowds. He began to avoid conflict with the religious leaders of Israel. And he did this because he wanted to spend more intimate time with his disciples to prepare them. Now, in this account, they had withdrawn to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, in that place, Jesus planned to reveal his full identity and the Father's plan to the disciples. Now, last time, we studied the location and history of this area. Now, we found that Caesarea Philippi was located in northern Israel, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's a, it's a beautiful region that sits at the base of a mountain called Hermon. This area also gives birth to the Jordan River. The, the Jordan then flows south, forming the Galilee River, so you might, or the Gal- Sea of Galilee, that is. So you might see Mount Hermon sitting in the north and the Sea of Galilee just below it, and this, this is the area below. Now, you might envision this area as a quiet place to withdraw from the pressure from the Jewish leaders and from the crowds. Now, before we move forward, we need to revisit the significance of Caesarea Philippi. This area had historically been known for its worship of Baal and other false gods. Even today, you can see the evidence of this pagan worship. In Caesarea Philippi, specifically, there is a shrine dedicated to the pagan god Pan, located in a cave which actually is the source for the Jordan River. Now, just before this time, Herod the Great had built a temple of white marble and dedicated it to Caesar Augustus. And the main takeaway here, though, is that Caesar, or Caesarea Philippi was known for its pagan worship of the fall of false gods. Significantly, it was a dark place that Jesus, pro- it was in this dark place, that is, that Jesus proclaimed his identity and the Father's plan to his disciples, and ultimately, most significantly, I would say, well, as just as significant, he announced this to the, to the demonic, or demonic realm. Now with that, let's review the first, this first vital insight into the nature and function of the church. Jesus has called his people based on the realization of his identity. You might say the realization of his full or true identity. Look back at your text in Matthew 16, 13. It says, he was asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, last time we approached this question by asking what is the significance of his question. Now, we saw that there is more to this question than you might think at first glance. Not only was Jesus asking what the crowds thought of him personally, in in Luke 9, 18, he says, Who do the crowds say I am? But I have argued that this question tapped into a common discussion among the Jews, especially the religious elite, concerning the identity of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. 
In Daniel 7, Daniel pictures someone, a, a son of, one like the Son of Man, who comes up to the Ancient of Days, and he's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all people, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. Now, clearly, the, the, the Jews understood the Son of Man to be the Messiah. Now, based on the verb tenses that, that Matthew uses in this, this discussion between Jesus and the disciples may have actually been an ongoing discussion that culminated in the exchange recorded by the gospel writers. So the question is, who is this Son of Man? Who, who, who is it? Then look at your text again in, in verse 13. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now today, we know and understand that the Son of Man is Jesus, Jesus the Messiah. This title also, but this title is, uh, it emphasizes, the Son of Man emphasizes both the humanity, uh, uh, actually, it, it emphasizes the humanity of Christ. As a matter of fact, this title is the most common designation that Jesus uses of himself. It's used of him 80, more than 80 times in the New Testament. But we need to recognize, and we saw this last time, that there is a, another significant aspect of this title. Earlier, I mentioned the Son of Man in Daniel 7. Now, I believe that in this passage, Matthew wants us to see the connection between the discussion of who the Son of Man is and that discussion that was, what was, that was going on between Jesus and His disciples and the Son of Man who receives everlasting dominion. Now, what I want to point out is Matthew and Mark actually don't use the phrase the Son of Man when they give, the, give this account. They simply record the, the question as, who do people say that I am? I said that earlier. Now, in solving this, so, so what is it, what's really going on and what's really going on? And what's, in, what's at play here? In, in solving or better understanding this, you need to recognize that each gospel writer wrote with a specific theme in mind. As an example, John wrote to show or prove or present Jesus was the Son of God. And, and we also know that, that Mark says that Jesus wrote to prove that Jesus was the servant who came preaching, healing, teaching, and dying for sinful man. And, and then Luke's, Luke came, or came Luke, so Mark's the servant. Luke shows that he's the perfect man who came to seek and save, to save uh, sinful man. Now, Matthew... So Matthew's where we're at. Matthew presents Jesus as the king and presents his kingdom authority. So now here's what's interesting. Some liberal commentators believe that Matthew added the phrase, the son of man, to prove a theological point. They, they, they don't believe that Jesus actually said that, used that phrase. That's the point. But I would argue that Jesus actually did use that, that phrase but that it wasn't important to Mark and Luke's theme. Do y'all get that? So he, he actually brings it out because I believe Matthew records and highlights this phrase because he, and brings it out because it brings out Jesus' ultimate identity. You see, Jesus, Matthew understood at that time as he's writing that Jesus is the true king depicted in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And I believe that he uses that phrase to make that connection to Daniel 7. And that also helps us to understand that his identity as the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is the source of Jesus' ultimate authority as a man as the Son of Man. So, at this point in Matthew 16, 14, the disciples give various possibilities 
to Jesus. They, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus responded to them by asking, but who do you say, who do you say that I am? Jesus asked this question because he wanted them to connect the dots. He wanted them to come to a full realization of his true and full identity. Now look back at your text in verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, you are, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. At that moment, in that place, Peter confessed that the Son of Man was also the Son of God. Now, we saw the, the Son of Man and what it emphasizes, uh, His humanity. The Son of God, the title of Son of God, emphasizes His deity. You see, Jesus is God, very God. And, uh, and Jesus then, at the same time, is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man emphasizes His humility and His humanity. Therefore, the second person of the Trinity, eternal in nature, left the glory of heaven to take on human flesh. That's, the, that's what's being emphasized here. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, according to Philippians 2, 7. The Son of Man then emphasizes his power and his authority and judgment. Not only his humanity, but his power, authority, and judgment. And we see that in Matthew 26, 64, where it says the Son of Man is sitting at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. In John 5, 26 and 27, specifically 27, the Father gave him authority to ex execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. We also see that in Daniel 7, where he's been given a, a dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And so, so that the fact that he is the Son of Man and the Son of God, and I would argue that it is the realization of his identity that ultimately propelled his disciples to do his work throughout the, the, the church age. Now, why is this important to us? Why is this important to us? That's the question. The church, here's the answer, the church transcends all worldly organizations. The church, in fact, has as head, that is Christ. Christ is, is the head. He is the king of the church, but he is also, get this, the king of the world. And that's very important for us to note. And lastly, why is it important to us? Because as a member of the church, as a member of the church, you are part of something much greater than yourself. I, I want you to understand, the church is not a club. The church is not some human organization. I want to keep coming back to this. The church is much greater than that. The church has as its head the very king of the universe. And we serve the very king of the universe, and even more so, we are his body on earth. We are his direct representation on earth. Now, this brings us to the second of these three vital insights into the nature and function of the church. Jesus has called us based on, based on the reality of his work, based on the reality of his work. Now, look at your Bibles in, in Matthew 16, 17. And Jesus answered and said to him, so this is Jesus' response to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, here Jesus blesses Peter for getting the answer correct. You see, Peter confessed Jesus as the Son of God, God in the flesh, and as his Lord and King. For that reason... Christ Jesus eternally blesses Peter. 
But here's, here's the, 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 the thing I want you to understand, that he blesses Peter, but he blesses anyone who follows Peter in that same confession. So anyone who follows Peter in that same confession as Jesus as God in the flesh is eternally blessed by our Lord. And in 1 John 4, uh, 14 and 15, John says, We have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so if we follow Peter in that confession, then we ourselves will abide in him. We will be eternally blessed. By believing that Jesus was raised from the dead and confessing Him as Lord and Savior, then we are saved. And we uh, receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In the words of John MacArthur, God pours out all His supernatural resources on those who come to know Him through faith in His Son because through Him they become God's own children. So in following Peter in that confession, we become God's own children. Now, here's here's the kicker. Look at verse 17, second part of it. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, the disciples had... Up until that point, they had heard Jesus' profound teaching, yet they were not convinced by that alone. The, the crowds even recognized the authority of this teaching, but they didn't recognize the basis for His authority. They saw it, they, see, they, saw his te- they heard His teaching, but they didn't recognize, and, and they even knew that He was authoritative in His teaching, that's Matthew 7, but they didn't recognize the basis for it. The the disciples had witnessed his miraculous works. He had raised the dead. He had cast out demons. He had calmed the sea. The the crowds had witnessed these miracles as as well. So had the religious uh, leadership. But they they witnessed the power of it, but they didn't understand or fully understand the source of the power. Natural man, uh, you and I as natural men and women, do not have the capacity to fully understand the things of God. As a matter of fact, the things of God are foolishness to the natural man. If you're sitting here today, if you're sitting here today and you're not saved, and I'm preaching these things to you, and I'm preaching this transcendent nature of the church, it's foolishness to you. It's fo- if, I'm, if I'm teaching the spiritual things of God, it is foolishness to you. So if, if you're sitting here right now and you're thinking this is foolish, you might want to think about the, where you actually stand. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man does not except the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. According to Jesus in Matthew 16, flesh and blood does not reveal these things to us. Only the Father can reveal them and cause us to understand them. Only the Father. Only the Father can do that. And that is what has occurred with Peter. It's exactly, and it's exactly what happens every time someone confesses Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The Spirit begins to quicken their hearts to seek 
to hear and to understand His Word. And through the work of the Spirit, they begin to understand more of His truth and His power. And, and just as Paul proclaimed, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And so, so we hear the Spirit prepares us and we hear the Word of God and we begin to believe. And we begin to behold His glory. We realize the glorious truth, get this, of His identity as we are being transformed into the image of Christ. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. It says, just as we have been born, born the image of the earthly, we also bear the image of the heavenly. And Romans 8, 8, 29, because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. And so we begin to, we begin to realize uh, that when we become uh, when, we, when we become believers, we begin to realize the heavenly, we begin to realize uh, the spiritual, we begin to understand more and more the truth, and we are conformed to the image of His Son. Now, here in Matthew 16, 17, I want to point out something that I've said a few weeks ago, that, that Jesus actually calls Peter by the name Simon Barjona. Now, I want you to recall my argument earlier in this series, and if you don't recall it, you can go back and listen, uh, but I preached this a few weeks ago. This signal, the Simon Barjona signal that G Jesus would ultimately use Peter as the bridge to the Gentiles. If you were in the equipping class this morning, you saw that again. We see this in Acts chapter 10, where Peter was given a vision at Joppa and sent to a God-fearing God Gentile at Caesarea. Now, I would again, what I would argue is that, that right here, we see in Matthew 16 that Jesus is ultimately signaling and showing that there will be Gentile inclusion in the church. Now, they wouldn't have understood that at this, at this point, but as they went along, they would have more understand it. Now, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way, and why this is important, is that the church right here, Jesus is, is actually signaling that the church would be a worldwide entity, including every tongue and every nation. Again, they wouldn't have fully understood that at the time, but they would understand it looking back. And we can understand it looking back because of what, what uh, the book of Acts records for us. So, what is the rock then? What is this rock that, that he talks about? He says, I, you are Peter, and, but look at verse 18, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So what is the rock? Now, there have been many debates as to the identity of the rock. Ultimately, the, this rock that Jesus talks about is the foundation of the church. So it's critical that we understand its identity. And I'll show you why. The Roman Catholic Church has, argues, does, has argued, continues to argue, that this passage establishes papal authority. In other words, the church was built upon Peter as its rock. Peter became then, according to the Roman Catholic Church and tradition, Peter became the first pope and bishop of Rome. And, and the, the papacy, the, the line of popes, has, has descended from that point. Now they argue that Jesus gave authority to Peter as the church's first pope. From there, this papal authority has been handed down through a supposed divinely ordained apostolic succession. 
According to the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope then is the representative of Christ on earth. They believe that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, his words are on par with God in Scripture. Now, let me just say this. The rest of the New Testament absolutely, without a doubt, does not support that interpretation. In in Ephesians 2.20, Paul taught that the church at Ephesus has been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, or you might say the chief cornerstone. The function of the cornerstone is to set is is to set is set the stone that it's the stone by which the rest of the foundation is laid it squares the rest of the foundation specifically the doctrine of peter and the apostles became the foundation of the church their their doctrine came from their relation and connect relationship and connection with christ the chief cornerstone Their doctrine, the doctrine of the apostles and prophets, is still the foundation of the church. We find their doctrine in the New Testament. Over 2,000 years later, we continue to devote ourselves to their teaching, which is found in Scripture. In the words of John MacArthur, the foundation of the church is the revelation of God given through his apostles, and the Lord of the church is the cornerstone of that foundation. Because it is his word that the apostles taught and that the faithful church has always taught. Jesus Christ is the true foundation, the living word to whom the written word bears witness. And no man, Paul says, not even an apostle can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, end quote. So Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, but it's his work uh, his, his word through the apostles that becomes uh, the, greater, the greater foundation. And so Jesus then is the cornerstone of that foundation. So he's the most important part of that foundation, if you will. And even the teaching of the apostles is his word. Does that make sense? In the words of, the, of Augustine, he says, Upon this rock which you have confessed, upon myself, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. I will build you on myself and not myself on you. That's what Augustine says. And that's what he's saying that the Lord Jesus says. Now, now I want to take this a step further. I want to take this a step further. This bears saying, even if it's self-evident. But I think it bears saying. I believe, so Jesus is the foundation. He's the cornerstone. He is the foundation the church is built on, on him. That's what Augustine said. I fully agree with that. It's what MacArthur says. I fully agree with that. But I want to take it a bit, just one step further. And again, this might be self-evident. I believe the identity of Jesus is the cornerstone upon which the foundation of the church is based. Now, if Jesus was just some other guy, then Building the church on that foundation would be faulty, right? But Jesus is not just some other guy, right? He's not just some Jewish guy that exalted himself. No, he has a unique identity, and we've seen this. He is the Son of Man who's been given authority. He's been given a kingdom. He is the ruler. Let me just say it this way. He's the ruler of the universe. 
He is also the Son of God. So he is, he is the King. He is the King of everything. And He has been given, according to Daniel 7, and we keep coming back to this, and there's, it's because it's so, it's so important. He's been given dominion. He's been given glory. He's been given a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve Him. He's been given a dominion that is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away. And he's, His kingdom, the kingdom which He has been given, is one which will not be destroyed. What we need to recognize is that man's ultimate purpose is to glorify God. Therefore, in the church, God is gathering for Himself a redeemed people who will worship and praise Him forever as the King. As a church, Grace Bible Church, and the true church, we are part of the true church, as a church, we are the redeemed who bring Him glory to all generations forever and ever. And He alone is the head of the church. He alone is the Lord. He alone is deserving of all glory and honor. Peter captures this thought in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, But you are a chosen family, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous lights. That's who you are. Now, I want you to see also that Jesus promises to personally build His church. You see, we are the bride of Christ. Look back at your text in Matthew 16, 18. He says, I will build my church. Now, let me just say this. Grace Bible Church, if we are a true church, and I believe we are, this church is not my property. This church is not yours. I mean, it is your church in one sense. But it is the property of Jesus Christ. He is the one who's building it. The church is His personal possession bought with His own blood. We are to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. That's Acts 20, 28. As such, as such, because it is His church, we can totally trust that He will build it. You know, this church has been through so many things. This particular Grace Bible Church has been through so many things. We've, we've lost people. People have gone and moved, and, and people have left, and, and things have happened, and bada-bing, bada-boom, and we are where we are. But here's the thing. This is so important for us to get. I want you to get this. I want you to get this. As such, because it is His church, you can be assured of His love and care. No matter what happens, if we are His church, we can be assured of His love and care, and we can be assured of His intimacy with us, because we are His bride, and Christ loves His bride as members of His own body. 
That's Ephesians 5, 29, then 30. And he will nourish and cherish it because that's who he is. Not only that, but he will protect it. He will protect it. Look at back at Matthew 16, 18. It says, I will build my church, promise, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This points back to Daniel 7, 14. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You see, as the church, we have been made a part of the kingdom. We've been made a part of the kingdom, and it's a kingdom that will not be destroyed. Let me remind you that Jesus makes that declaration as he stood by this cave and pagan shrine dedicated to a false god. He's making this this promise to the demonic realm that his kingdom will not be destroyed. In fact, that cave and later temple has been tuned into this large rock. You know, the, he talked about the upon the rock. So I believe Jesus made a direct proclamation that he would not only build his assemblies, the assembly of the believers, of believers, the church, he would protect and he would deliver them. And there is no principality or power who can separate them from the love of Christ. Now, I want you to get that individually, but I also want to get you to get that as the church, that as we go through the difficulties of this time, as we see the church rent asunder, as we see all of these things going on, we can know that there is no principality or power who can overcome the church. I love Paul's words in Romans 8. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, in the words of John MacArthur, no matter how oppressive or hopeless the church's outward circumstances may appear from a human perspective, God's people belong to a cause that cannot fail. Beloved, you belong to a church You belong to the church, and therefore you belong to a cause that absolutely cannot fail. Now, you may ask yourself, and I think it's a great question, what does Jesus mean by saying the gates of Hades cannot overcome the church? I've said that Christ will protect the church, and that is very true, but we need to recognize that the gates of Hades are not instruments of warfare. What is our greatest enemy in this world? death, right? We need to see then that these gates are gates of a prison. In this case, the prison is Hades, which is the abode of the dead, not eternal hell, but the abode of the dead. And so when we understand this properly, we see at that place, in that place, in Caesarea Philippi, at this, at this uh, temple or at this uh, place dedicated to the God Pan, Jesus declared that death cannot hold his people captive. The gates of, the, of that prison are not strong enough to keep his people captive. We know that Satan was given the power of death, and at that place, as Jesus was ready to go to the cross to face death, Jesus declared the power of death could not hold his people. The writer of Hebrews states, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death 
were subject to slavery all their lives. So he's saying that that prison of death cannot hold him or will not hold his people. You see, our Lord at the cross and in the grave has conquered sin and death on behalf of his church. He has redeemed them from sin and death through his blood according to the riches of his grace. And so therefore, death has no mastery over him. He has defeated it and it has no mastery over you or I if we are in him. Now, as we, as we finish up this morning, let me give you ten, this will go fast, ten quick truths that flow from this study. I want you to understand the transcendent nature of the church. First, the very bedrock of the church is built on the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and the Son of Man. In simple terms, Jesus is the solid rock upon which the entire foundation of the church rests. Second, Jesus Christ alone holds the divine authority to build His church, laying each stone with precision and purpose. Third, The congregation of believers, the church, comprises of those who have openly declared Jesus as their only King and Sovereign. Fourth, the church, collectively and individually, is eternally blessed by the gracious hand of Jesus Himself. Fifth, The redeemed body of believers within the church finds its origin in the sacrificial love of their Lord Jesus, who purchased their freedom from sin and death through His own blood on the cross. Sixth, through His redemptive work, Jesus liberates His church from the shackles of sin and the looming shadow of death. Seven, As the church's shepherd, Jesus personally gathers his redeemed flock into his fold, adding them as cherished cherished members of his church. Now, it's funny, I'm giving you these truths, but there are so many implications that flow out of them. So many implications that flow out of them. Let me give you the eighth one. The church, as an entity, belongs intimately to Jesus Reflecting his divine ownership and his authority. Well, that's so important to understand. So important to understand. We're going to see more of that next time. Let me give you ninth. With tender affection, Jesus attends to the needs and concerns of his beloved church. Caring for each member of the church but also caring for us as a body with unparalleled love and compassion. Let me give you the tenth one. Ever vigilant, Jesus stands as the ultimate protector of His church, guarding it against all threats and adversaries with unwavering devotion. Boy, that's so important. That 
we understand as God's people, we understand as the church that God, Christ himself is our protector and he himself guards us against all threats and all adversaries. There's no one that can take us, there's no one that can hold us, uh, that death can't even, can't even keep, it us, keep us imprisoned. So, here's the, here's the last thing I'll give you. All of those truths, everything that we just heard, all of this can be applied to, and I've said it over and over, but I'm gonna, it bears repeating, all of this is applied to the local church, to the local church, to this church, and to any other church that's a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've seen the first two vital insights. Jesus has called his people based on the realization of his identity and the reality of his work. Next time, we're going to see the the third vital insight. Jesus has called his people based on the recognition of his power, based on the recognition of his power. Church, I hope you're getting some idea of the transcendent nature of the church. We need to stop thinking lowly thoughts about the bride of Christ. I love uh, the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, we must cease to think of the church as a gathering of institutions and organizations, we must get back to the notion that we are the people of God, end quote. Dear Grace Bible Church, you are the people of God. You are the people of God. Now, but as we learn about the transcendent nature of the church, there probably should be some tension there, right? You're probably asking some vital questions. So here in Matthew 16, Jesus is talking about the universal church or the, or the, the visible church. How do these, or the, the true church, but the universal church. And how do these truths apply to us? How do we actually apply these truths to us? What, what is the local church? What is, what, what, what is it? What, does it have a biblical basis? Do these truths, I, I've said that they do, but can we be assured that these truths apply to us as a local church? And how do, we, how do we even know here at Grace Bible Church we're a legitimate church? Well, let me give you, a, a, as we look forward to the next sermon, let me give you a preliminary answer. The preliminary answer is the local church is the manifestation of the universal church at a specific time in a specific place. It is the place where we're able to partake in the benefits of our union with Christ with other believers in this fallen world. Now, I want you to see the transcendent nature of that. It has been said that the local church is the outcrop of the church universal. The local church is the outcrop of the, the, the church universal. Let me leave you with the wisdom of John Calvin. Of course, we believe in the invisible church evident to God's eye alone, but we are told to accept the visible church and remain in communion with it, end quote. So as we close, I wanted to, I can't leave you without reminding you, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're not a part of this church, maybe, maybe many of the things that I'm speaking of, maybe they are foolishness to you. I'm just a, an old guy that's rambling on about these things, and, and I can promise you that's true. But 
if you don't see the truth of these things, if you don't see the truth of what Christ has done for His church and for you, it's very possible that you stand outside of Christ, that you are not in Him. And the Bible is very clear. If you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, it says that it is appointed for man to die and then comes judgment. And if you're not standing in Christ, you do not have His righteousness. And I can promise you that as you stand before a holy God, as you stand before a holy God in judgment, as you stand there with your own righteousness, you will be found wanting. You will be found, you will be undone. And Christ, the Lord, it says in the Bible, it says in Scripture, that Christ will judge you and that you will receive the wrath of God upon you. That's the, that's the terrible truth. That's the terrible truth. You can't be in the, holy, the, the, the presence of the holiness of God outside of Christ's righteousness. And let me just say this. Christ came into this world. He came as the perfect man. He came as the Son of Man, the Son of God. He went to the cross he bore our sins. He took upon Himself our sins, your sin. He died on the cross, bearing the wrath of the Father. Uh, the Bible tells us in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think I prayed it earlier, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You can have the very righteousness of God, the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus, if you would only believe. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. If you don't believe, and, you, and something, if you drop dead even right now, even today, you would be standing in front of the Lord and you would be answering for your sin to Him right now. Today, today is the day of salvation. Today, don't let another moment go by without believing in the Lord Jesus, without turning to Him in saving faith. If you don't know Him today, He says, come to you. He says, He beckons you to come where you'll find rest for your souls. So today, today is the day of salvation. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You for Your goodness to us. Father, I pray if there be any here that don't know You, that see this and understand this as foolishness, that don't understand the cross, don't understand salvation, Father, I pray that you would save them even now. Pray that they would cry out to you in saving faith. And Father, I pray the church, church is your idea, it's not ours. I pray that we would come to see the transcendent nature of the church that is more than what we can see with our eye and hear with our ears sense with any of our senses. Flesh and blood doesn't reveal the true nature of these things. Oh Lord, I pray that you would reveal to your people, continue to reveal to your people, Lord, the meaning of the church, and that you would protect this church 
that you would protect your church and that you would, Lord, that you would deliver us no matter what happens in this world, no matter what difficulties we go through. Father, whether it's sickness, disease, pestilence, no matter what comes our war, whatever comes our way in the future, O oh Lord, Lord, we trust in you and we walk in you and you alone. We pray these things in the name of the Lord of the church, the head of the church, and the king of the, the universe. Amen.